Welcome to Season 5 of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve, the biggest sci-fi podcast in the galaxy. The adventure is just beginning here at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, and we invite you to come aboard the Starship Tangent. We know you'll enjoy the conversation, the laughter, the banner back and forth, and most of all, friends who love hanging out to talk about all things science fiction. Set your phasers to fun. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to a thrilling episode of our podcast, where we have the honor of hosting Christopher D. Abbott, an author whose work spans the realms of crime, fantasy, science fiction, and horror. As a reader's favorite award-winning author and an Amazon bestseller for his Sherlock Holmes, The Watson Chronicles series, Abbott stands out as a master storyteller. Now, before I carry on, I just want to remind our listeners out there to do all that stuff that helps podcasts like ours get noticed. You know, like it, review it, share it on your platform of choice. And a big shout out to our parent network, Trek Geeks. Back to Chris, who has contributed significantly as a Star Trek feature writer for Screen Rant, where he delves into the intricacies of the universe from Discovery to Picard. His insightful articles, such as exploring potential Voyager character comebacks and discovery and retconning TNG's Romulans and Borg history, have resonated with Trekkies worldwide. Now, Star Trek is not the only place where Chris shines. Chris is celebrated for his faithful adherence to the spirit of Conan Doyle in his Sherlock Holmes novels and novellas. He's also collaborated with esteemed authors like Aaron Rosenberg, who edits the Cases by Candlelight series, Michael Jan Friedman, and Keith R.A. DeCandido, who was a guest here on The Big Sci-Fi a few months ago, by the way, and to expand the Holmes universe. And now in 2024, he teams up with Keith again for not only Cases by Candlelight Volume 3 with Aaron and Mike, but as editor of Chris's brand new Sherlock Holmes anthology, Eliminate the Impossible, which features non-traditional stories from Keith, Chris, the amazing Mary Fan, and Derek Tyler Attico, the author of the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko. Wow. So Chris, welcome. Wow. Thank you. What an introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> we like to, to embarrass, you know, our guests with the introduction. That's, that's kind of one of our goals. It's one of the best introductions I've ever had, so thank you very much. So speaking of introductions, how how did you get introduced to science fiction? Oh, through the television series Doctor Who. That was my first real, um, first sort of science fiction, history fiction, uh, a little science horror, horror fiction, all of that kind of Mm -hmm. embodied in that. As a, as a child, I was born in the mid seventies. So, um, eighties was my time. And yeah, I grew up from that. And then from there, obviously I branched out and found other TV shows and so on that I quite liked. Um, but Star Trek was introduced. I was introduced to Star Trek by my uncle and we saw the Wrath of Khan. And that was where I went from there because, um, I was too young for the, uh, the first film <laughs> so mm-hmm. i had to watch yeah. it i had to watch all the, the the 507 iterations of it later uh which i quite like most of them yeah very good so so from that film did you go back and watch the original series or was it like next gen that you got yeah, into i think uh, yeah i think i got into next gen first i had watched well, I was a Star Trek fan before Next Gen because I liked the original series films. So I mm-hmm. followed all the films. Um, I did go back and watch the original series uh, when I was younger. And I must admit, because we didn't have streaming and all that sort of stuff, it was really, if it was on television, um, I got to see it. But most of the places that were renting videos and so on were doing like seasons of the Next Gen because I lived in the UK. So we were like four mm-hmm. years behind you guys mm-hmm. at that time. You know, the fourth season of Next Gen. TNG was on when we were starting to get the first season in the UK. Right. So what I find fascinating about that is because you and I are quite literally like just about exactly the same age. Yeah. But we grew up, up uh, an ocean apart. Yeah. And so while in theory, you'd think we'd have a similar experience with media. No, no, because we were in in completely different countries. So it's it's interesting because I would expect you to have, I guess, a similar experience to me. But if you know you're delayed, that's a that's a big yeah. difference. Yeah, I think it was delayed, and I think the thing is, like I said, back in the UK, we didn't have until the '90s when we got 
um, cable and started to be able mm-hmm. to get channels from the US. So we got more frequent US type TV, which was fabulous because we'd never seen it. I'd never seen any of these things before. Yeah. Um, but Star Trek specifically, yeah, we were well behind on that. And then when I did finally get caught up, um, I found Deep Space Nine. And as soon as I found that series, I knew it was my, it would all be, it would be my all time favorite. And it, and it, it is. Chris, can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you're, if you're first, inkling of star trek was watching the wrath of khan yeah and not having watched the original series right the effect of who is this guy named khan why does he hate kirk so much why does he want to extract revenge was it difficult to or did you just say oh this is a nice story and then when you went to watch the original series and you saw spacey you went aha that's why he's such an angry person. Right, yeah. So I obviously, yeah, you're right. I had not seen uh, the Space Seed episode, so I didn't really have any idea who this current character was and so on. My uncle was very good at um, explaining things to me um, when I was a bit, you know, unsure of what was going on. But generally speaking, I went into it blind. So I loved the story and I thought it was great. And then I think the very, very, very minimal uh, backstory that Chekhov gives um to uh the captain uh forget his name now um oh terrell terrell thank you yeah um was enough i think to you know to get the impression and of course as soon as you see khan the first thing he does is he tortures them <laughs> so you know immediately his character <laughs> I, I, I adored I, yeah. <laughs> I adored mm-hmm. everything about that film the wrath of khan i just you know because it was horror in space as well mm-hmm. um you know especially the scene when you hear mccoy say something like rigor hasn't set in long you know they, they can't have been oh, dead long. and you yeah. think mm-hmm. this is star trek you know this is like mm-hmm. but yeah yeah because these things really happen so i liked that and i liked the i don't know i feel, I feel like when I went back and watched the original series, I really did enjoy it, but I felt the seriousness of the um, the, the the Nicholas Meyer versions on um, were, were much more in keeping with what I preferred than the more sort of flying things in the sky and stuff, you know. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. And, and it just, it's, it's interesting because, again, you know, um, watching them in a certain order helps, mm. but not having that and the fact that the movie you didn't have that order and you enjoyed wrath of khan on its own shows that it is on its own a great movie and that's good thank you thank you yeah i was in the same boat like i i grew up with wrath of khan as one of my all-time childhood favorite films (laughs) without having seen space seed until seeing it in high school and i'm like ah now i get the context but i felt like you're right you're right chris that Chekhov explaining it to Terrell and then seeing Khan doing his Khan-ness, you basically already know what you need to know Yeah, uh, yeah to sure. enjoy it. And I think there was some interesting um, articles about that. And we talked about this before on another subject, but it was the Chekhov point, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, Chekhov wasn't in that episode, so how did he know? And then right. he never, well, the, the reality is, is that we kind of know that Chekhov perhaps was, and that he was in like, say security, and he was in a nominal position, and he would have probably been one of the security guards that, you know, got rid of Khan off the ship or whatever that. Mm-hmm. In, in, and I think, yeah, that's cool. I, I, yeah. I'm good with that mm-hmm. because yeah. Khan wouldn't yeah. forget his face, would he? No, right. no. If, if so, so he was yep, there. Exactly. <laughs> that's the way so I he always was took there, it. Yeah. So that's, that's the way I, I like always took theory. it. Yeah, that's the way I always took it. Like if he didn't forget a face, then he was there. So growing up as a science fiction fan, okay, yep. how do you what was the path from that to writing? Writing for screen rant, writing and writing anything, really. How did you go from well growing I, I, up I, to writing? I, I guess um, I should preface this by saying that I'm a dyslexic author, so I suffer with dyslexia. And when I was a kid, of course, this wasn't really recognized um, other than that, you know, the average kind of 80s playing the fool, you know, Christopher can do well, but lacks the confidence he needs to do it and all that stuff. And I think that, but I was always interested in writing stories. And then I was very fortunate to meet an English teacher at college who recognized that I had dyslexia and immediately structured um, the, the the course I was doing for that and made it really possible for me to sort of succeed at some things, which was enough for my confidence. I always wanted to write, but I never felt I was capable of doing it. And then 
I was working on my first book, which was uh, Sir Lawrence Dies. And it took eight or nine years to write that book. But I never really written a book and I didn't really know how. So I decided, decided to write the dialogue first because I thought, well, why don't I just do that? You know, <laughs> it's a murder mystery book and I just have them. So that book itself, in, in essence, was taken from like any any of these uh, uh, investigatives uh, serials that I'd watched, you know, Monk and a few other things. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I like the way they do that. Oh, I like cool. Poirot. I like uh, Holmes, you know. So I thought, oh, let me see if I can, you know, figure out how I could do it, but also do it in that format that feels like it would work repetitively rather than just a one-off. So that's where I got to. But but the real draw, I think, um, these shows, sci- science fiction shows and so on, got me into reading because I wanted to read more about those shows. So the crossovers, so like uh, the V series, I read books from that. I've read supernatural books. I've read all of the crossover tie-in type books. And that's what really made me want to write um, that. And the, 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 the question was, I was a huge mystery fan. Would it, would I be able to write a convincing murder mystery um, that that somebody could say, oh, I never saw that coming. And at the end, <laughs> yes. Um, could I do that? And so the answer was, well, let's give it a go. And I did. So have you read um, folks like Agatha Christie? And Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I grew up a very young age. My dad was very keen to get me into reading. And I used to get my bike and go down to the library and get out a book. But uh, Yes, I read things like well the first book I tried to read was The Fellowship of the Ring and I didn't I didn't do too well so I was sent back to the library to get The Hobbit got that and then I was on my way but in the interim period the hobbit was out i had to wait they said oh you know do you like mystery this this lady do you like murder mystery i didn't know so i'm like sure so she gave me a um uh, an agatha christie book the first book which was uh, uh lord edgeware dies so that's where okay. i got my title for oh i'm sorry yeah so that's where i got my title for that book sutherland's dies because i liked it it was just so simple like nobody's gonna quit ask me what's it what it's about I'll, you know somebody dies i mean that's that's mm-hmm. that's it so but yeah that's what really got me involved and then i started to read tie-in fiction and i started to read people like peter david michael jam freeman you know all of the regulars of of that keith to candy like all doing crossover tie and stuff and i just wanted i wanted to do it too nice it's amazing nice. so I have, i've had a question about um, sort of the, the the mystery process. Like you were talking about, oh, I, I don't know if I could write a convincing mystery. How do you find, like how, how do you go about creating a mystery and then having the reveal be surprising, but not so like out of nowhere that it's impossible, yeah. but not so obviously a twist? Um, yes, good question. I think the the uh, the best answer for that is is that what I do is, Obviously, I outline as best as I can. I do allow in my outline for um, a change of direction as it happens. You know, um, I allow quite a lot. But mostly, mostly I have already completed the beginning and end in my head. So when it's um, if it's more than a a novella, which is around 40,000 words, if it's like a novel, 80, 90,000 words, this is my process, right? I write the beginning and write till about the middle of the book. I then write the end. I then bridge, and that way oh, it feels like then that, that way it feels like I have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the bridge from the end. Okay. But when I finished, then I go back and I see this is. And it's, I don't know wh- why I came up with this like figures and stuff, but I go back and see three clues in every chapter. Like I don't know why it suddenly became three clues, but that's what I do. So that. My idea is is that out of context they mean nothing to you, but once you've know the solution, if you then read the book again, you mm-hmm. should see right. all these little things mm-hmm. that will be like, oh, I missed oh, that the first time around, you know, because mm-hmm. I always feel like people will read the book twice if they liked it the first time, and maybe mm-hmm. the second time you want something in there that they didn't see because they had no context for it. Mm. So Very that's good. Okay, that's that's amazing because in my head not having written anything in my head, writing a mystery novel would like seems to be the hardest genre just because you have to do all those things of you have to find the clues, make the clues believable, but interesting 
find the reveal interesting enough that it's shocking but also believable i'm like i can't think of a more a more daunting task no and it, you're right and you know you were always at the mercy of the last success you know so uh, if, if you did well at the last one people were going to say oh i'll take a chance on this one because that was okay and then you'll get inevitably that one person who says ah you know that was a little disappointing it wasn't quite as good as the last book and so it's it's tough i mean i've written over 20 specific single Sherlock Holmes stories and so 20 of them with 20 different plots as best as I can because you know after a while these things start to recycle and then you know so I have to be aware that whatever solution I come up with for this story Mm -hmm. it cannot have been the solution for any other at all like it can't even be remotely like it and that's how I try and keep it fresh. And how do you have keep you, track of? Uh, oh, oh, I was gonna say. Well, I was going to ask: Have you read all of Arthur Conan Doyle's original Sherlock Holmes? Yes, I have. I've read uh, yes, all sixty-two stories. Yeah, all sixty-two uh, wow. stories in oh. one exciting book, kids, right here. I, I actually have like this. <laughs> I need to check that out. <laughs> I have this uh, anno- an annotated Holmes book. It's like four inches thick, and it's uh-huh. like this big. I found it at my local um, refuse place they had like a little shed that people had donated stuff and they said you know books and stuff of course books i'm in and this thing was i couldn't believe it it's it's like it weighs about five ten pounds i mean it's a ridiculously heavy book but Mm -hmm. um but i think um i think it's important when you come up with ideas that you allow yourself the time to develop them you allow yourself the time to recognize that it may not work the way you hoped um and also because I don't have a shortage of ideas, I try to wrap one or two ideas together so that if I'll give you an example, the haunted mansion was originally a Sherlock Holmes story with a sub story that was about Watson's past. But as I developed the story, it became the Watson story became the prominent story. Um, and the secondary part of that story was that they go to India and while they're there, Holmes solves a case. But but it's mostly about Watson. So that's where sometimes I try and change it up a little bit. And it's easy when you've got a guy, that's the guy narrating. He can say what he wants. You know, he's telling you the story. So, and mm-hmm. I always assume he lies anyway. <laughs> I guess one other thing I wanted to ask if you had, uh, you know, in, in terms of research and, and reading, have you read Nancy Springer's Nola Holmes stuff? No, uh, I admit I have not read the, any of it. I want to. I've seen, obviously, the adaptations of, mm-hmm. on Netflix. Fabulous. Um, yes, I love I, it. <laughs> I, I adore all the characters and all the actors, and I think they had a great ensemble. I mean, like, mm-hmm. what a quirky pair, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of them, the the, the mother, the, the, the whole lot, you know. So I haven't read it. I, I, I do intend to, but here's the thing. I have, like, a stack of books, like, <laughs> to the ceiling <laughs> of things that I have spent I need to read and uh, I just keep adding to it and hey, writing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's because yeah. we all know collecting <laughs> books is not the, it's a very separate hobby from yes. reading the books. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. And I go to every event like you and I come away with like all, all my friends' yep. latest books. Like that's how it works. That's how I get my books, you know? <laughs> yep. I did meet, I just want to say, I did meet Nancy Springer at, Balticon, I think it was two years ago. She was the guest of honor. Oh, and wow. we were in the green room together. Uh, I'm trying to remember our specific interaction, but it resulted in her calling me very young in a way that was like very like thank you. Cause I Aww. don't always I'm not I don't always feel old. I'm not old, but no. I'm not young. And yeah. so having other people tell you you know really you are and yeah. looking at it from that perspective, it was kind of cool. <laughs> she was very, she was very lovely. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to meet her. Yep. Excellent. So yeah. what? Uh, so so yeah. So well, how did this your desire for writing turn into Sherlock Holmes? Out of all the things, right. like why in that universe, as opposed to completely inventing your own universe? Mm. Why Sherlock Holmes? Well, I guess two solid reasons. One of them is it sells. <laughs> Um, oh, that's good. And the first Sherlock Holmes book that. I put out did more in that first month than I did in a year in some of my other books. So I thought, oh, and I talked to um, Mike Friedman because I wanted to see if I could place it in a, you know, with with a different publisher. Um, he recommended I keep it for myself and 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 publish it, uh, you know, self publish it, which I did. Mm-hmm. But I I, I have 
had an editor do all the editing, uh, professional editor Scott Pearson does all my editing. And he's a Simon and Schuster editor too, because he also edits all the Star Trek books. So I'm pretty connected <laughs> with him. I, I got that mm-hmm. through Mike and friends, but you know, so it's really important that whatever money I spend on that project had to be on the editing. Like that's the key mm-hmm. thing, but it did really, really well. So, but what happened was is in the UK, 75 years for the um, copyright, uh, mm-hmm. So in the UK, Holmes is in the public domain, but in the US, it's a hundred years, and there were still stories that were counted in the tw- up to twenty twenty four. Now, oh wow! So, but when I first wrote that first one, it was nineteen ninety nine, and there was no way I could publish it unless I published it through a, a, an actual publisher. So I put it aside and forgot about it, and then twenty years later, I'm like, oh, is that a story? And I checked and it's in the public domain and I could publish it. And I'm like, great. So I had it edited and I did it. And yeah, so that's why. Mm. But the the real reason I like the Sherlock Holmes, I think more than say, like my favorite is Poirot, but I just mm-hmm. couldn't write one. It, it, it requires a level of skill that I don't think I have. I did write two of my own and they're Agatha Christie-esque, I would say, mm-hmm. because of, because the, the 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 person um, the investigator um uses uh, psychology but in the 1930s so we can't really you know call it that that's a newfangled thing you know so he's not really a criminal psychologist because they didn't have them then but mm-hmm. that's kind of like what he calls himself a psychologist and so on but i did that because of poirot but honestly mm-hmm. the home stuff just came to me one time and i had a knack for it and i don't really i don't really know i didn't do anything special to learn it i just i'm just i guess a little ocd so i make a lot of lists mm-hmm. and and that's and then i like the repetitive nature of the fact that he solves every crime but he also does it in such a way that is interesting and in, intelligent uh, rather than sit there and say well i heard two people say this and i got that from it which is still mm-hmm. clever don't get me wrong but you know there's something about him picking up is my you know magnifying glass and saying oh look there's a fingerprint on the door and or whatever you know i like i like that stuff so is there any tie-in to the fact that in star trek the next generation they did a lot of sherlock holmes on the holodeck (laughs) did that happen to like yes there's a factor (laughs) yes the factor with um lavar burton and brent spiner playing those two characters was just amazing i loved moriarty too and i loved mm-hmm. that they brought and i loved that they yeah. brought him back in picard even mm-hmm. though oh, so good and momentary, he, yeah, just momentary but he right. had such but he had such a good amount of dialogue you know he had something i think what i liked about this new series of picard so i jumping off to one side for a second is that they That's gave fine. they gave all of those actors time to talk to each other mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. little. I mean, that fabulous scene between Riker and Troy in the in the brig, whatever. Where, yeah. Oh my god, that's yeah. so good. Favorite scene of the entire series is oh, that, that moment series. together yeah. where yeah. they're realizing they're going to die. Yeah, but they're going to die together, and it's yeah. just it's beautiful. I thought that that's it, and I like that kind of. I'm a character driven author, so I write a lot of character based stuff, a lot of dialogue. I'm I'm not like Stephen King, who just like whole chapters of just description i can't write like that um because i want move i like my stories to be fast-paced i like you to be able to move along with them mm-hmm. um and i've done that f- regardless of the genre i'm writing in my sci-fi book the the big one for crazy eight the one i did progenitor turned into like the craziest sci-fi horror i've ever written in my life <laughs> yeah i think alien meets um the war of the worlds and i think you've got a good idea it's set in the 1930s and they escape this calamitous thing and lock themselves in with something even worse so it was fun but i think that was an accumulation of all the things i'd seen in star trek in in science fiction uh, in Mm -hmm. crime shows like csi and stuff because there was a csi sherlock holmes episode and that was the first episode i ever saw so i've had a bit of a holmes fixation for a while there's a csi episode about sherlock holmes i've got to watch that season five um i think episode seven like like... yeah the original csi yeah it starts off that they're they're actually in a room where they've like and and there's homes with his pipe and everything and it's just like a fan they get together they dress up but it it was cool because they went the sherlock holmes route with it which i thought was fun 
Um, well, since, cool. since you mentioned we've mentioned TV and other shows, is there a particular or is there what, what's your favorite Sherlock Holmes movie or what is your favorite version? Because there's been so you've had Cumberbatch yeah. play him. You've got, uh, you know, you've had so many different movies and different actors and playing different versions of it. Is there one that you go, yeah, that's the one I like the best or that's the one that's most entertaining of the films or TV shows that were about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Um, I write for Jeremy Brett, uh, who played Sherlock Holmes in the 1980s and nineties for a TV series called Granada television. He is essentially what he's considered to be the kind of like the epitome of what that character is, you know? Mm -hmm. And I write, my stories are my interpretation of his interpretation of the character, <laughs> you know, so uh, right, I, I okay. want, I want him, you know, so if Jeremy Brett does a quirky thing that is out of character for Sherlock Holmes, but he does it, then as far as I'm concerned, it's in character for his Sherlock Holmes. Okay. So it's, so that's, that's the truth. I'm a big fan of quite a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stuff. And I've not really, you know, like I'm starting my own, um non-traditional Sherlock Holmes could be a blade of grass and a wasp who knows but the point is I'm I like all all the variations of it I love the Enola Holmes but I didn't care for the Robert Downey Jr films ah, yes. so much I liked mm-hmm. the concept of the steampunk idea and of course some mm-hmm. of the act- mm-hmm. some of the actors in it were really good but I'm not I'm not sure he was right for the role. In fact, if they if I they remember. had switched Jude, uh, yes. if they switched Jude Law for Holmes and, uh, and yeah, Danny yeah. for Watson, I think that would have that would have worked very very. Uh, can I can I make a recommendation of a Sherlock Holmes film that is completely off the beaten track? Oh yeah, definitely. Go for I it. It's called, it's called They Might Be Giants. Came out in 1970 or 71. I'm writing that down. George C. Scott playing oh. the part of a judge who is not completely sane but thinks he's sherlock holmes <laughs> and and his psychiatrist that they send him to whose name is dr watson and played by uh joanne woodward it's oh, a sweet wonderful films yeah. and it's just it's it's one of my favorite films of all time they might be giants because you get to see this person play the character he wants to be which is Sherlock Holmes yeah because he wants justice in the world and fairness and so I recommend that to you if you have a chance to see it I've, I've written that down I think one of the most important things about the character of Sherlock Holmes is that it is completely genre free you can put Sherlock Holmes anywhere and he or she or they will work um, and I think that that is one of the most versatile things about that character. You can have him in a holodeck episode on, on mm-hmm. you can have him Dr. Who meet him. I mean, like it doesn't matter. It can be as whimsical or as silly as you like, because Sherlock Holmes was like one of the first superheroes. He just didn't wear a cape mm-hmm. and that, and Watson wasn't mm-hmm. an, idi- an idiot. He was just standing next to the most intelligent man in the room always, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's important. And the sci-fi connection with that really like, even horror films, you know, like they started doing Jason films in the 32nd century because, of course, he's a demon and can come whenever he wants. So what does time matter to him? But I mm-hmm. like that that even the genres are crossing over the last 30 years, how mm-hmm. everything is crossing. But have you noticed that the stable seems to have been whatever the Star Trek period of time, whatever show it was, that became like everybody needed to copy that mm-hmm. because because that was a – and I think we saw that in – in in other shows later on that said oh you know we want star trek from the 90s again rather than star trek from the 20 20s um I, I don't really i don't really understand any of that but yeah but you you have to change i think and that's important you stick sherlock holmes in something people were interested yeah it's it, and again it the you know cumberbatch doing the his the series sherlock which yeah. is very entertaining i loved it yeah Yes, and the guy who played Moriarty was just <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, yeah so really good. really good. So I mean, you know, you you can do these. You can put them in the current time. You can play with them yeah. in the past, whatever. Um, it, it is a very versatile. The, the concept of him is the, I guess, the the big thing, you know. And that's that's yeah. where you you as long as you stay in that that realm, people, as you said, they're going to like it and want to read it, and it's made you some money, I guess. Well, and precipitantly, you know, when you look at different 
genres and you look at different stories, that main idea of somebody clever and somebody beside them to ask the questions that we want to ask has, as a format has worked across so many platforms. I mean, it's exactly the, pro- the exactly the Doctor Who thing that he has a companion so that he can be clever, and they mm-hmm. can ask, "What's happening, Doctor?" And the same in in Star Trek and stuff. And they go on away missions. You'll get that one person that's always asking the questions because they're the audience. They're they're us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Well, that's the and way what, you avoid exposition is you have someone in the story who doesn't have the same knowledge, and then yeah. I feel like that mm-hmm. that's kind of like a not not a, a trick, but like. It's how you get you can info dump without info dumping. Yes. And the other thing I quite like is also lists um, where mm-hmm. a character can read our list. I learned something um, as some little tips that Agatha Christie did when she was writing to try and not just misdirect you, but completely confuddle you. And that was like in one paragraph, she would mention gun, revolver, bullet gunpowder like you mm-hmm. just you're just being a, 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 an, a like an assault on your mind with all this stuff so that then you can't think anything else it has to be a gun it has to be a gun and then at the end it's a knife and you go oh wow and i think <laughs> i learned things like this she was a very clever woman but she said the human brain short-term memory of course is only capable of holding a certain amount and lists apparently you you give somebody a list and we've seen this if you watched um the generation game if that was on here where mm-hmm all these things go past you on a conveyor belt and then you have to remember as many of them and win them at the end. That's mm-hmm. kind of the same, same thing. You just got to re- remember all this stuff, you know? Yeah. That's yeah, really that's amazing. Neat. So mm-hmm. when you're, when you're writing Sherlock Holmes, do you have like a set of rules that you have to follow to make sure that it's within the character or within while we think of Sherlock Holmes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, uh, initially, yes, because uh, I wrote down, you know, I went through all, all my research on the character to find out what he likes and doesn't like, you know, because every now and then you might want to add something in there like he doesn't like fish. No one knew that before. Yay. You know, so I did that. Now, yeah. after doing it for four years, um, pretty much all, all the way through, um, yeah, I don't think so much now. I think I know the character well enough. I also know the character well enough to take some liberties with him as well. I never want to redesign someone else's characters. So Holmes and Watson are Conan Doyle's and that's it. They don't change. You know, that's that's it. But all the characters around, I mean, I added nearly 80% of the characters into all my stories are mine. And so I can use them again and I can do what I want with them. And I'm not restricted. You, you, know, you have to use Lestrade every now and then. You have to use these people, you know. But I think one of the most interesting things about that Star Trek episode when uh, they picked Data as Sherlock Holmes was just, it was obvious. Like, this is the walking, talking, thinking machine, as he is described by Watson. A calcu- more to a calculator than a human being. Well, this is Data. Mm-hmm. What, what, a, what a clever, what a clever concept! And just say, well, let's take that step forward, and then make him Sherlock Holmes, and give him all of that data. And at one point, I think Geordie says something like, "You, you knew that, right?" Like, and he went, "No, the, the whole point of this is I didn't know anything, and I have to do these deductions." And he just assumed that Data knew, but in fact, he didn't. He did all those deductions and discovered it. But what's really interesting right now about that particular episode is how we think about AI and it it yes. churning and spitting out things that are kind of known versus actually doing something original. That's actually one of the current open debates is whether or not, I don't like to call them AI, I call them advanced algorithms, whether the advanced algorithm is truly coming up with something new or is it just churning out you know, some, rep, yeah. you know, version of what it's seen before, which is a, it's interesting how they, that's the kind of, one of the things that they touched on in that episode, like 30 something years ago. Because they foresee. Do you, do you mean? Go ahead, oh, yeah, Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I was just going to say that just because I think the people who were creating the pads and all that stuff in Star Trek in the, in the nineties. And I think they, they knew that whatever they created, someone was going to love it and try and recreate it. But we've had mm-hmm. iPads since then. We've had all sorts of technology that we can visually say, this came from Star Trek. Like they would, why would they make it look like that? Mm-hmm. And so on. So I think, yeah, I think, I think there's so much in it that crosses with our real life. It's, it's, it's why we still talk about it all the time, you know? Oh, sure. Oh, Chris, oh. were you going to, I was going to say, were you just were you talking specifically about the 
the whole discussion that Dr. Pulaski has where she's like, you're, a, you're not, she doesn't say you're a phony, but like when the computer starts generating images and then data is able to connect those images to other things, she's like, well, you just saw that symbol. So you, yeah, that's yeah. how in, you in figured the, it out. Like that right. kind of well, thing. In the, it, kind, kind of, in the concept of you have a, a an algorithm that took in input. So in this case, took in all of the known Sherlock Holmes stories and produced something that was really elements from what it took in. Yeah. It didn't actually make anything mm. original about it. It just no. you know, re repurposed elements versus an algorithm that could do something in the style, but be actually original. And right, the, okay. having yeah. that discussion of whether that was possible or not, uh, it was just interesting because that's kind of the discussion we're having today about advanced algorithms and what they're capable of. I think that at some point, AI, AI whatever you refer to it, is here to stay. And we, we're going to have to come alongside it and see where we fit. Uh, I don't think it it's not capable of writing an original story right now. I don't think not 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 totally original, not with a critical eye of of a human being who says, "Well, this is similar to that. Maybe I should make a tweak." The computer AI system, as intelligent as it is, is at the moment just reproducing a sort of idea based on other ideas, which is what we do too. The mm -hmm. difference is the difference is, from my perspective, is is it cannot tell if it's plagiarized anything unless it does a you know check by check on on everything. Mm -hmm. The other thing is. It, it doesn't know if it's good. That's that's it, true. Yeah. It, right. it, it, yeah. And you know, I mean, when I finish a story, I kind of know if it's good, and I kind of know if it's bad too. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I've noticed, because most of my work now, certainly the Holmes work, is self-published. So I do all my own work. I do my own publishing and so on. And I've seen things like Amazon saying, "Oh, well, we're going to reduce the number of books you can publish in a day, in a day, by like mm -hmm. three because of that." because people are creating a hundred stories and they're uploading them and selling them for 90 cents and yep. selling them. Yep. That's yep. where it is. Yeah. So speaking sure. of the other human authors, you worked a little bit with Michael Jan Freeman and Keith. Yep. I mean, and especially, you know, I feel like I've been aware of Michael Jan Friedman since I was in college or something <laughs> when he started <laughs> writing. Like I, I think I have some of his first novels on my 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 shelf yeah. so what was it like to collaborate with these guys oh well first of all you know what it's like being a fanboy and then you're fanboying yes. <laughs> over the over the authors you were reading when you were a kid and now they want to write stories for you no my first meeting with mike happened at a convention i went to in new york um i I was friends or am friends with Chase Masterson and I did some work for her charity stuff and she got me introduced to Aaron um, Eisenberg and we became friends and so he got me at this gig he said I'll get you there you know bring your books sell some books I'd never done anything like it and they put me next to Mike Friedman and um, De uh, and Dave Stern two of the most prolific writers and all it had on the piece of card was MJF and it was on the table and he sat down and slowly put out like a thousand books you know and there's me with my one and fairy lights but uh, yes I think from that moment on, I, I developed a friendship with Mike and realized that he, that, that they're people like the actors, you know, you meet them and you're all starstruck. And then you realize when you go in the green room and they're like, oh, taking their shoes off because they've, they've been on their feet all day. They're real people. And Mike, mm -hmm. Mike and Aaron and Keith, um, they're, they're very, very personable and very, very aware and, and around. So that if you need help, like new authors, they can talk to these guys. These guys will help. Mm -hmm. That's how they, that's how I got where I am. Neat. Neat. So can you tell us specifically what, uh, or tell our audience specifically what you did with them? Yes. Um, uh, I did the, first of all, we did the Cases by Candlelight series, which is, um, the idea was, it was four um, original or traditional Sherlock Holmes stories, but I wanted one from Mike and Aaron, and we kind of put this thing together to see if it would work. Mike had never written a Sherlock Holmes story ever. So the first one he ever did was for me. And it worked very well. So we decided to do another one. And then I thought, well, let's, because I'd written two of the stories, and then Mike and Aaron had written the other two. I said, let's get a third person. So I approached Keith, and, you know, he, he, he 
resounding yes. Um, and now we're we're about to do our third volume. So, but working with them is very very fun. They are so creative all the time that they are always firing ideas. You know, like it's never stopped. But when someone sends you a story that is a ten times New York test New York Times bestseller and says, "Let me know what you think of it." Yeah, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But yeah, collaboration. It's fun. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to do some more collaborating this year, but I'm going to do something a little different. Rather than have individual stories written by some people, I'm going to collaborate where we write either two parts of the same story um, or, or, we, we, or we write the entire story together. So that's kind of goals, really. Um, but yeah, you would think, I, here's my process now. I used to write my story first. Now I wait for theirs. <laughs> Because uh, the first time I, I'm like, oh my god, like I can't know. Mm -hmm. I've got to rewrite this or do so. I wait for their mm -hmm. stories to come in, and then I and, and then I generally write mine. I was wondering how you do your collaborations. That's that's interesting because I mean, it, you know, you 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 each have your own writing style, mm. but you got to make it mesh together so that it's one legitimate story. Yeah, and to me, that's like you know, Adina writes on her own. She doesn't have sure. a collaborator. So what she puts out is what she feels. Yeah. Whereas you're working with some, it's it's almost like you're doing a job with somebody and you you've got to make sure that the two rails of the of the railroad tracks meet at the right location. Yeah. Uh, by in, instead of being on your own, like I'm gonna go this way and I'm well, gonna go that way. And yeah. I do wanna I do wanna say that even for people like me who quote unquote write on our own. Uh, between beta readers and my developmental editor and stuff, in, in a lot of ways, um, I'm not 100% on my own. There, there's yeah. a lot of external input that goes into the finished product. Mm -hmm. So I just, just want to kind of, it isn't like I'm not some amazing genius or whatever. There, there's other people. Oh, come that, on. You know, of course we, you all, we all know differently. We all know we. differently. <laughs> But no, right. really, it, it's there's there's other there's other people. I'm not I'm not alone in a box. No, yeah. right. and same right. for me as well. I mean, okay, yeah. it depends on the um, uh, on the on the method by which you're doing mm -hmm. the work. I mean, um, uh, you've done short stories uh, for anthologies as well, so mm -hmm. it's very interesting collaborating because it's either really successful and and very smooth, or mm -hmm. it can be or it can be still successful but not quite so smooth um mm -hmm. and 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 trying to balance all of that but my yeah. experience of creating um three now anthology books and two more coming is that it's a great process it's great fun and you can get so much out of working with other people plus it's, it's it's great for them too because they can add their links to their own stuff in there and um one of the things that i offer perhaps which is why people do come to me is that i offer proof that my stuff sells so you know and i never saw myself as a publisher uh but i guess i guess people are because i published two books as a publisher rather than just as an author but i think that's the way forward for for me anyway mm. i mean i would love to obviously i'm still going to keep pitching to titan books and so on but <laughs> you know that's the that's the way i i run it do you get a lot of people asking you, you know, like aspiring writers asking you for advice? Now, yes. I'm not, I mean, I think I'm a bit more visual now. I wasn't, so I've done a few of the shore leaves and things. So I've uh, begun, uh, grown my audience, but I do get asked that. And I think my answer is always the same. And that is that because I was dyslexic and for many, many years told I would never be able to do it. Um, I did sort of avoid it for a while and now i say to people don't get your story out like it doesn't matter about grammar and, and that yet that stuff can all be fixed later if you've got no story to fix then there's nothing yeah so get your story down you know and i think that there's an old phrase in there everybody's got at least one book in them I, I think that's true but what i do think is if you can sit down and just sketch out your idea however you want to do it not be bogged down by the number of words you've got to write and not be bogged down by the spelling or the grammar and just write the story how you want it. When you go back to it, it's so much easier because you have the foundation. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Allow the stream of consciousness to work. Just go through it. And when yeah. you're all done, 
you know, what's that, you know, write first and ask questions later, I guess, if you want to say. Yes. Or that phrase, you can't edit a blank page. <laughs> yes. Ooh, I like that. Yes, yes. that's that's, that's much better. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> and also, you should never, I mean, you're, of course, edit your own stuff. We do that um, as a standard. I think we, we do it as we go along and then afterwards. But um, always, if you can, you know, that's my advice to any aspiring new writer is if you're not sure how to fix something with grammar and so on then pay an editor to fix it then you will be able to see all the changes yourself and see mm -hmm. where they've corrected it and that's what i did i uh i i look at what my editor is seeing what repetitive mistakes i'm making and then i'm trying to correct them it's is it fun. more continuity that your editor is looking for as opposed to just this simple thing like grammar and spelling and blah like that yeah. are they looking to make sure that you're that the things are happening in an order that is logical and entertaining and non-repetitive. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So for example, my editor will say, Hey, we said this in paragraph three in the last chapter, it's similar. Do you really need it? And those are the questions ah. that I get when, when, when he goes through my edits, he'll highlight sections and say, this information we've been given twice, this is really not necessary unless you want to, unless you're reiterating it for a reason and so on. And uh, also like stuff like, I don't know if, if this has happened to you, Adina, but when I write, sometimes I create what I call a, a style sheet and it has like all the names and everything in it. Because the first time I sat down, I had a guy in a story called Dave. And by the end of it, he was Robin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've done smart. that. Yeah. I've done there's that. A, there's a continuity question. Oops. Oops. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Yep. I don't know how that happened. Yep. I have done exactly that. Mm -hmm. And, and do you, you know, when your editor comes back and says, you know, you need to make these changes, you know, do you just say, I see your point, you're correct, I'm going to make these changes, or do you go, no, 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 this is this is gold to begin with, what are you talking about? This is the best there <laughs> could possibly be. Um, so I know people like that <laughs> who, who, who will say, yeah, thank you for your advice, but I'm good. I won't change it. No. First thing I do, I look at it and then I hit accept all. And then I'll address the comments. Uh, I don't, I, I send my work to an editor for a reason. I don't need to second guess him if he's okay. edited it. And so that's just me though, right? I mean, a lot of people like do fight to the death to hold one sentence in their story, you know, and I understand it because it's come out of you. It's your, it's, it's your creativity. But for me, mm -hmm. uh, no, I just, I'm happy if the editor, once the editor has, it's already kind of in my mind, I've now left it and I'm moving okay. on to the next okay. story. So, uh, and then when it comes back, I generally go through the edits, but for, for his grammar edits, I just accept them because they're always very good. So mm -hmm. and I think you have to have a good relationship with your editor. That's the key. Mm -hmm. He knows yep. exactly what I'm writing and he, needs, he knows exactly what I'm trying to do. So if I screw up or there's an element in the story that doesn't make sense to him, he's highlighting that to me right away and saying, hey, look at this. I don't understand what this is. And uh, that's really helpful, too. That's great. Yep. That's great. I, I completely agree with that concept. <clears throat> of it, it is a relationship and you, you have to find the person that works with you. The woman who you know I use, she completely gets the voice I'm trying yeah. to achieve. That's the key. You know, and yeah. Um, and that's yes. <laughs> and there's nothing worse than getting a manuscript back from somebody who just didn't get it. And mm -hmm. so they've just edited it for errors and not really taken any time. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, these aren't actually errors. But yeah. So uh, having an editor that knows your stuff is great. Yeah. Or like, you know, in my writer's critique group, you know, uh, there were a couple of times um, this one person who I love dearly. He's a great guy. And I, and I like the stuff that he writes, but he would critique my stuff where he attempted to change my dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't do that's it. that's like, no, 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 no. This is yeah. how the character yeah. speaks. Mm -hmm. If it's in quotes, if it's in quotes, yes. leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so you are, you know, you're under no obligation to take it. Well, so no. in a critique group, this is critique. You are under no obligation to take it and even with an editor you know I'm, I'm paying this person i am under no obligation to to right. you know take what they suggest but i agree with chris i am paying them for a reason oh so, yeah you know yeah while generally like 99 percent of the time i accept what they do grammar wise i accept what they do but some of the other like word choice or whatever i might be like i, I take note that they pointed it out like something obviously struck them mm. you know as a reason to point something out and but you know, it, it dep depends on the situation, but, but yeah, right. I paid them for a reason. 
Yeah, and, and I, it's the same as cover artists and stuff. I mean, you know, you, yeah. these people are all skilled. They're all different yeah. skills. I don't have the skill to do covers. I can do interiors of books and not till the cows come home. But I am not, I'm not an artist in that regard, you know. So, so that's what are you working on? What are you working on right now? I am working. I'm just starting the new series of books that were going to come out this year. I just finished um, Four Calling Birds that published at the. December 25th. That's a Sherlock Holmes anthology of four stories, but they're all linked um, in in small ways. Um, and so what happened was I developed that and I liked the idea of the East End of London and, and this story, these four stories kind of go from 1880 to 1901. So there's like a 20 year gap. And then this new set that I'm working on now, one starts in Blessington Street, which is where the first two episodes of that and they're all connected and then the next one and the next one so my intention <laughs> is to write all three back to back as one big story and then split it up uh, and then that will give me my march june and september books that i publish and and then i'm going to eliminate the impossible with keith mary and Derek at the end of this year and a cases by candlelight with me, Aaron and Mark and Keith. Yeah, so busy. busy <laughs> and I just and I year. just pitched for weird tales as well. So we'll see what happens with that. Excellent. So for someone who wants to start reading your Sherlock Holmes novels, do you recommend just starting at the beginning and going in order, or does it matter? Or it doesn't matter. Um, uh, the each story is in independently solved, so it's just like one story. The the series links them, but that's it. There's no, you know, oh, I have to read this one in order to understand. No, mm -hmm. I never wanted that because I figured with sixteen of them, I wanted no one's. It, I don't want to put people in the position where they can't figure out which one to start with. So mm -hmm. pick any, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, these three that are coming out this year, we decided. Jeff and I decided that we wanted to do something a little different rather than write three individual cases that like I do normally, we're going to write this whole series. Each story will have a res resolution of that story's crime. So no one feels cheated, but the next book will start the next segment of that story and the third. And so that's my plan. But the first two stories go up to the point where Sherlock Holmes dies and disappears. And the last one is when he returns. So that's interesting. That's, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. So can I ask you this question, Christopher? Mm -hmm. um, is this your full time gig? Yeah. Are you a full? So your income, your lifestyle, everything that you comes from your publishing these short stories, these and novellas, novels, whatever. Yes. Was it scary when you decided that you're going to make this your full time gig? That you're going to like, am I going to be writing from a soup kitchen at some point, or will I be <laughs> able to, you know, afford a home and everything that goes with it? So yes, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done because, um, like everyone else, I worked from the moment I could work till you know at a place. Um, mm -hmm. When I moved to America, that was no different. I I worked at Staples for a small period of time and then became a general manager for them and I ran about eight stores in Connecticut and I was just used to going to work and so what I had to do was first of all take a two-thirds pay cut <laughs> and and then try and see if we can make it work and I was very fortunate that my husband at the time wasn't my husband but um, we talked about it and he's it's, it came at 2020 so it was COVID wow we were right in the middle of the pandemic. Jeff was stuck in Minnesota for most of it. I was here. Um, and uh, at then I had kind of, I was doing like more sort of nursing by CNA stuff. But we decided this was the right time. I mean, everything went that way. So for me, the pandemic was a, it was a huge uplift because I was able to do this. And it took a year and a half before we saw any financial gain from it, which was okay. scary. Yeah. But now yeah i do it full time i and 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 i'm very happy doing it that that's, way that's great you know, to be able to do that because you know it, it's it's you're, you're giving up something that's a, a sure thing you know working at staples you know um yeah. and and going okay i'm gonna write and i hope people read it and then they buy it and then i get to do it some more and you keep going and it's self-perpetuating yeah and you still have to keep churning out 
new material. You have to constantly be, I, I have to, this is my job. I have to keep building, building, building. And is it daunting or is it, you know, like I love doing this every day. It was daunting. It was daunting. I think more so because I, I do suffer with anxiety a little bit like a lot of people. And um, so I'm always conscious, like, you know, if I see my sales have dropped, my first reaction is, oh my God, this is it. The bubble's burst. I, I better get out and find a a proper job and then mm -hmm. uh, you know then the next day it's it's twice as many as it. so it, i've been worried about this bubble bursting since mm -hmm. 2020 and it, it i did what 18 consecutive days at number one with my new book um, that's great which is amazing which is where i'm i've got to which is what i've been trying to get to and and yeah mm -hmm. but yeah it was terribly daunting even the same case of moving from the UK to the USA? Not so much. That wasn't daunting because I had somewhere to go and I had a plan and, and, and everything was going to be kind of like we worked out. It took me well over a year and a half to even get all of the stuff done with the American consulate to come here. I mean, it was a right. long process. But what happened was, and what kick-started my writing career, I guess, <laughs> was when I moved here, they wouldn't give me a work permit at the um, American embassy. But when I landed and I was going through the immigration, you know, with my whole life in a four bags, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. And I pre presented the, the, uh, the, the, the guy. He says, what are you going to do for work? And I said, I don't know, but if you stamp it, I might be able to – bang so i was able to work pretty much right away but then when i was transitioning from my visa to my permanent residence card um, there was a period of four months where i was not allowed to work oh, so wow. i so i wrote a book <laughs> okay <laughs> nice that's, that's cool the, the good use of your time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so speaking of time i'm going to try to segue into the times that we're going to get to see you, Chris, at upcoming conventions. Sure, yes. Um, I think we're at both of the ones, aren't we? Yeah, so Trek yeah. to Long Island in April, uh, May, June, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that weekend that crosses the month. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. all of us will be there. The whole yeah. sci-fi podcast no, will be we're, there. We're, it's going to be great <laughs> to oh, meet, yeah. that's meet you in person. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Oh, I'm pleased it's, about it's, that. It's actually exciting because a number of the people we have interviewed on this show will be there as... Yep you know yeah. guests <laughs> of the show whatever of the event and it's going to be like old times which I is great mm -hmm. i have to say that um stephanie um who runs the um trek long island is absolutely incredible i mean she's yeah. done such an amazing job mm -hmm. and the first one was great and then the second one i'm going this year to would be the dni is that right dni con yeah, it's the it galactic dni in philly yeah. in the middle of April, and I will be there with you Super. at that one. My, yeah. my, Mike and I are coming to that one. We've both yep. been invited to that, so that's really yep. cool. Um, and I, I think that will be my first opportunity to meet meet him. Oh, were you not at – he was at the um, Jekyllung Island last time. Did you not meet him then? I must not – well, because we were very, bu we, we yeah, were very you, busy doing Big Sci-Fi podcast I will stuff. Make, <laughs> I, will make sure, I will make sure to introduce you guys because he'll be there well, in, in, yes. uh, for Trek Long Island as well. Yes. So yeah. So you and I think we'll we'll be there. The those two. So just those two for you this year. Those right now? just confirmed. Yeah. Those are two confirmed ones. Um. I I I always do sure leave, but this year uh, we may not be able to because the date for that is over my fiftieth birthday weekend. So. Um, I know because so it's my fiftieth birthday weekend too. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you guys so, have too much in common. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm well, not think, sure we're going to make it. Chris, you're one day older than me, or one I'm day younger than me. I'm July thirtieth. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm two days older than you. There you go. You don't look uh -huh. it. So, Chris, <laughs> respect your elders. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I think. That brings us to the end of our fascinating journey with Christopher D. Abbott. Thank you, Chris, for being here so much. Thank you. You've taken us on a truly captivating voyage. Thank you for sharing your insights and your stories with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. To our amazing listeners, thank you for joining us today. And there will be links to Chris's books in the show notes. And your homework is to check out some of his work, even if you haven't already. Now, if you want to interact and chat with us, you can join our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter, or you can always drop us a note at the big sci-fi podcast at gmail.com. 
And I want to give a shout out to the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. We're very proud to be part of the Trek Geeks Network. And in addition to the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, you'll find other really cool and entertaining podcasts there, like the Sci-Fi Sisters. And all three of us, uh, Trek Geeks, the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, and Sci-Fi Sisters, you'll find all of us as part of the podcast crew at Trek Long Island in that May-June time frame. So everyone get your tickets right now, right? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. It's only elementary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have avoided doing that. No, no, don't be, don't apologize. Because (laughs) because I think it's got to a point now where I'm looking forward to doing it. You know what I'm saying? Because I have avoided saying it entirely. And like, yeah, it's it's coming. It's like I, some of the things that Holmes does. There's only one time in my story where he plays a violin. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Well, everybody, until next time. Treat your fellow life forms with respect and care, and may you live long and prosper till we reconvene for the Big Sci-Fi Podcast.